Well, we are coming to the end of Galatians, and we are almost there. And if you can remember, um, when I started this series, I said, you know, different speakers like to start their sermons differently. And uh, some pastors like to to start them with uh, different jokes, maybe an illustration. And pastors also like to end their sermons differently. We're going to see how Paul ends his book of Galatians today. He takes the same kind of form with each of the books that he writes. You know, some pastors like to end their sermons by revving up their audience to an applause line. You know, maybe you've been to a, a church like that. You know, I was showing Luke a video the other day of a, a pastor who was really getting into it. And he was singing at the end of his sermon. And the choir got into it with them at the end of the sermon. Man, you're like, you know, really jazzed at the end. Some, you know, some camp speakers that I, I grew up always seem to like to end this, the sermon with an emotional story about somebody dying and like all of us wanting to come up and be missionaries at the end of the message. You, maybe you've, you've heard that kind of ending to a, a sermon. Well, Paul gets to the end of his letters. His habit at the end of his letter is to rattle off like a litany of really practical instruction. At first, they they kind of read like a bunch of random proverbs as if he's saying, remember this, don't forget this. But truthfully, it's not random at all. These are practical outworkings of the gospel. And what Paul does as he changes his writing as he gets toward the end of each one of his books. So all, and we see that by his verb tenses. You see the indicative verbs all throughout the middle part, then as he gets to the end, like the last chapter, the tense of the verb changes to an imperative. It's a command, do this, do that, do this, as an outworking of what you've heard me say earlier in my, my message. So an indicative statements about what God has done in the gospel, then an imperative is how you should live in response. That's the best way of thinking about this. Often, Paul will signal this with that transition word, therefore. You guys have seen that word multiple times in scripture, therefore do this. If you see that word, you've heard people say before, you should look and see what it's there for. He's always referring back to what he has said previously. So when he says, therefore, he is getting ready to give a command. You'll see the verb tense change. So that's what every good Bible teacher tells you is whenever you see that word, therefore, what is Paul saying that it is therefore? Paul is urging us to respond to the gospel that he has just explained. And that is the third line of the gospel prayer, if you remember. We went through the gospel prayer in the spring through our Zoom small group. And the third line of that is, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. As you have been to me, God, is what you have done for me, your kindness, your graciousness. We sing about the goodness of God today. I will be to others. And chapter 6 of Galatians is unpacking that subject. Let's start with the end of chapter 5 because it kind of leads into chapter 6. 5 verse 25, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You know, the the Spirit has created for us a new reality in the gospel, and in that gospel is the resurrection power. We have resurrection power living inside of us. But to experience that power, you must live consistently with the gospel. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I want to stop here in this verse. This word conceited here is so important. And it's really, that conceit is not really the best translation. We don't have a, a good word for this in the English. 
The old King James Version says false glory or vainglory is a way of translating that. The idea is that you are seeking glory for yourself based on false premise. Remember what Paul has taught us through this book. You and I were created to be complete in God. His love and his presence are to be our glory. We are only living to bring God honor and glory through our lives. Literally every part of you cries out to hear God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. When we, well, when we sinned, we were stripped of that love and that acceptance. And as a result, we felt naked and ashamed. That's why you see Adam and Eve in the garden making for themselves clothes because they felt naked and ashamed of their sin. So we begin to look for it somewhere else. And we walked through that a few weeks ago of how we look for that glory, for that acceptance from everything else in this world except for God and how it leaves you wanting time and time again because it never fills that void in your heart that only God can fill. So we tried to show you that there were a better way through God to do that. And this, this, way, this, this idea of false glory, of vain glory that we're seeking for ourselves in, in life, it says, let us not become conceited, or let us not pursue that false vain glory. And it manifests itself in two ways. He gives us two words, provoking one another and envying one another. Those are the two ways we pursue it. Provoking, you have this superiority complex. There's something about you that makes you feel like you're better than others that sets you apart. I'm prettier, I'm nicer, I'm richer, I'm more moral, I'm more talented, I have a better family than you. That's the provoking one another. And then the envying's the, the other side of the coin. You have an inferiority complex because you, when you compare yourself to others, you don't match up and you resent that. And what we have in common is that you enter relationships from a sense of emptiness. You need glory from others to have that feeling of self-worth. That's what you're looking for. And what Paul is saying is the gospel does three things in your life. Here's what the gospel does. It takes this away from you. It humbles you. It teaches you that there's really nothing about you that makes you better than someone else. All you have is a gift of grace. Everything you and I have been given in this life is God's grace. The fact that we wake up today is God's grace. Not only does it humble you, it completes you. You do not need glory or distinction from others because you have it approval from God. You have God's approval, so we don't have to seek it from man because we have God's approval. It humbles you, it completes you, and it redirects you. Rather than being a person focused on using others to meet your needs, you become a person who offers yourself to meet the needs of others. This is what the gospel does inside of you. Before the gospel, you approach everything, every relationship from a market standpoint. When I say a market standpoint, you look at it as from how can this relationship benefit me? How can this relationship help me fulfill my life's goals? With every person, you have this kind of plus or minus chart in your heart. What can they do for me or my family? 
Watch how Paul goes through this litany of instructions as he finishes out Galatians chapter 6 to tear this down. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you are, who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. How does a gospel-saturated person, how do they respond to sin? They move toward that individual in empathy and compassion, knowing they are made out of the same stuff. Paul say, look, you see someone that's, that's being tempted. Know your own heart. Know that you are someone who could fall into that same sin. You're not above that. Move to them in compassion, knowing that you know better. The fact that, that, I, that you have not been overtaken in that sin probably comes from the fact that you have been spared from the circumstances that that person grew up with or that they have lived through. Or you would have made the same dumb decisions. The gospel teaches you that any righteousness you have in this life is not of your own doing. It's only by God's grace. So when we look at it that way, it humbles us and it allows us to move toward that person tangled in sin and empathy and compassion. Thus, when you're around someone you ha that has fallen, you're able to help lift them up humbly. Any righteousness we have is a gift. A person who doesn't know the gospel assumes that their righteousness is something that they've achieved. So they feel conceited and proud, and they back away from that person. They think, I don't want to get encumbered with that mess, so I'm going to stay away. I don't want to be associated with that mess, so I'm going to stay away. They're abandoning the imperatives, the instruction, this, this instruction that Paul is giving the Galatian church here in Galatians 1. He says in verse 2 of Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now in context, the burden he is talking about bearing is a burden that someone brings upon themselves in their sinfulness. If you get the gospel, you will enter the burdens of others Burdens that were brought onto themselves by their sinfulness. And when we do that, what does Paul say? What does Paul say we're doing when we do that? We're fulfilling the law of Christ. The law of Christ is that you voluntarily share the burdens of others. Now in context, he's talking about bearing a burden caused by sinfulness. You can expand the principle to any burden we see others bearing. Why? Because Christ bore our burdens for us at Calvary. So here's my question for you. Let's think about it like this. Think about the burdens in your life that you are carrying. How many of you are carrying burdens that come from others? How many of you are carrying burdens today, this morning, the things that were troubling your heart as you drove to church this morning how many of those burdens that troubled your heart were the burdens of others? It's a heart-wrenching question. Think through that. One of the signs that you've really encountered Jesus is the willingness to actually share others' burdens. Burdens that aren't inherently yours. 
even burdens that others bring upon themselves because of their own sinful, dumb decisions. There are, of course, other ways to apply this principle. You can think about it financially. You can think about it emotionally. You can do it with people emotionally hurting when they hurt, making their concerns a matter of your prayers, praying for others besides yourself, trying to shoulder the load in really practical ways. You know, we try as a church with our caring, with our Bethel cares, with the, the foster care, taking them meals, watching over kids. One of the things that I really hate doing, but that's taking a, a burden off of someone, is helping someone move. No one, I think, enjoys helping someone move. But I can, I, I, I can count... I, I can't count how many times I've helped someone move, especially if you've lived in you know, a college dorm. You like help your college buddies. But there's even some of you out here that I've helped move. And I do it to help share your burden, not because I love moving, because I don't think anybody likes that thought. But it's an, a practical way of living out, of bearing one another's burdens. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's going back to the problem here of conceit, of false glory. Do you really think you are something? If you really think you are something, you forget the gospel. You do not understand the gospel. Do you remember when you, where you were when God saved you? God says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were a child of wrath. That's who you were when God saved you. You weren't a not-so-bad sinner, or you weren't a sinner who still had a good heart, or you weren't a sinner with a lot of good potential. God didn't look at you and say, there's still some good. No, we were all so wretched in our sin that it took the death of God's Son to save us. Think about that for a moment. That's where we all were. So when we get conceited or arrogant in our heart, remember what God had to do to save you. If you forget that and think you are something when you're actually nothing, you will be self-deceived and you'll be proud and ungenerous toward others. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, it kind of sounds like Paul's contradicting himself for just a moment. First he tells us to bear each other's burdens. Now he says to bear his own. But you have to keep it in context. He's, he's going after this problem of being conceited, and he's saying it's quite foolish to feel proud that you aren't struggling with something when someone else is, because our struggling or absence of struggling is due more to the fact that we've been given different loads to carry and not the fact that we're better than someone else. We've all been given different burdens in this life, and that's something that we, we constantly have to remind ourselves of. And we say, he's this way or she's that way. We forget that they've got a different burden. They're carrying a different load than what I'm carrying. And so because of that, it requires grace on my part and the way that I respond to them and the way that I care for them. Understanding that their burden in life is different, and it's my job to come and help carry that with them however I can and whatever that looks like, and not to criticize them. 
because it's so easy to do that when someone is different or acts different or responds to life differently than we are. We're forgetting the burdens that they carry. Each one of us has been given a different size load to carry. So don't compare your struggles with someone else's because if you'd been given the same load they were given, you may struggle the exact same way that they're struggling. That's why Christian marriage may be better demonstrated through two people who have learned that they don't always get along learning to love and be patient with each other as the perfectly matched couple. We have this idea sometimes of the myth of the perfect Christian marriage. And you get up every morning and everything always feels like snuggles and rainbows. And we know that that's not the truth. That's not the way that marriage works. Paul says that the lighter load you carry has more to do with God's grace in your life than just being an, an inherently awesomer person. Yeah, I just made that word up. That's not the way life works. The fact of where you land in life is all God's grace. The fact that your load might be lighter than someone else is just God's grace in your life and nothing to do with you. So here we are. Several ways the gospel reshapes how we approach broken and needy people. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm broken and I'm needy. Every single one of us in this room, because of our sin, we are all broken. We all need, number one, Christ, and we need our church community to come along and carry our burdens together. A conceited person is someone who has forgotten the gospel and doesn't move toward other people in need. They've forgotten how dead in sin and helpless they were when God saved them. They remain unaware of how much God showed to them when he saved them. So they approach every relationship with this market standpoint. What will I get out of this? Will this add value to my life? When we understand the gospel, the gospel as gospel people realize that Jesus came to us not because he needed us, but because we needed him. He came as a, a sheer act of love, and those of us who have experienced that love should love others the same way. Not because we need to be loved, but because we love them. That's one of the ways we should try to pray daily from this gospel prayer that I mentioned. As you have been to me, I will be to others. So at the very center of reality, at the heart of redemption is an event. My life for yours. Jesus came and said, I will sacrifice my life for your life. When we forget the gospel and are proud, we operate according to the opposite principle, which is your life exists to serve mine. That's a heart of conceit. That is not the gospel. Paul concludes his letter here. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Scholars would say that verse 11, they'd say Paul's probably going blind. 
and he's writing really big letters on that parchment paper. He's telling the Galatian church, see, this is my own handwriting. You know it because these large letters, you know I'm going blind. I'm writing this letter myself to you. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they despise to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul's finishing this book. Remember we started the book. What was the controversy in Galatia, the church of Galatia? You had these Jewish Christians telling the Gentile Christians, you got to be circumcised to be a part of the faith. And Paul's writing here saying, no, that's not the case. You cannot add anything to the gospel. The gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. That is it. And he wraps all of that up here at the end. And he said, whether you're circumcised or not, if you're boasting in that, if you're boasting in anything else but Christ, you've missed it. You've missed the point. You've missed the gospel. He says, for me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying nothing else in this world matters. Nothing else in this world matters except the cross of Christ. My boast, Paul says, is in the gospel. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Let not the wise boast of their own wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts about this, that they know me. We have nothing in this life to boast about. We do not boast about the size of our house, the size of our bank account, our career up the ladder, our intellect. We have nothing in this life to boast about. The only thing we as believers should boast about, as Jeremiah says, is that we know Christ. That is it. That is all we should boast that we have God's grace. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die upon a cross and that we can boast in the fact that we are redeemed people. Paul ends this book, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit, brothers. Amen. And he puts down his pen and sends the letter to the church. That is the end of the book of Galatians that Paul writes.